Welcome to the AdLaw Access podcast. My name is Paul Singer. I am a partner here at Kelly Dry. I'm pleased to be joined today by Beth Chun, who's a senior associate. Beth and I are, are part of our state attorney general practice here at Kelly Dry. And we're going to be talking today about the National Association of Attorneys General, or NAG, as it is unfortunately called. And, you know, I, I think some of the reason we wanted to have just a dialogue and conversation about NAG is just to increase an understanding of exactly what is NAG, what do they do, and importantly, what role do they play in both shaping and participating in attorney general priorities throughout each year. So essentially, the National Association of Attorneys General is an association. It's exactly what it's called. It operates for the benefit of, and importantly, at the direction of its members, which is every state attorney general, um, including the attorneys general of the territories. So there are 56 member entities of the organization, and they are governed by an executive committee that is made up entirely of attorneys general themselves. This structure is important to keep in mind as we talk about NAG, because way too often NAG becomes an interchangeable word for what's really referring to a a broader coalition of attorneys general. So for example, you might hear about a NAG letter that went out. Well, that may very well be a letter that went out on National Association of Attorney General letterhead, but it is made up of the signatory attorneys general. That's who actually sent the letter. You might hear about a NAG multi-state effort or investigation that a number of states are participating in. But again, that's really a misnomer because it's not NAG that is generating that particular investigation. It's it's really the member entities and, and AGs that are actually participating in the organization. So we're going to talk a little bit today about some of the very specific roles that NAG plays and importantly doesn't play when it comes to consumer protection, um, both shaping priorities and in enforcement efforts. Um, and I'm going to start by talking about one key area that the AGs participate in, which are policy letters. So it is not uncommon for a group of attorneys general to take a position on a particular piece of legislation or a rulemaking or just an issue that is facing their constituents through the form of a policy letter, a a short letter that just describes the AG's role in that particular space and puts forth a particular agenda that the AGs have who who are signing collectively agree that it's an important issue that, that they should be speaking on. When 36 or more attorneys general agree on a particular letter, that letter can now become what's called, quote unquote, a NAG letter. And that NAG letter is now on NAG letterhead. Um, It is sent through the association. But again, it's only the policy, it's, it's only being put forth as policy for the specific attorneys general who are signatories to that letter. So you may have a particular letter that's signed by 40 AGs, but it's important to bear in mind that there are there is a large coalition of attorneys general that don't necessarily agree with the opinions of that letter. And so, you know, it's when, when evaluating exactly what the substance of that letter is and who it's speaking um, on behalf of, it's very, very important to keep in 
mind that it's only those that are signing that are actually asserting that as their office's position. So that's a little bit about policy letters. I'm going to turn it over to Beth to talk about NAG working groups. Sure, thanks. Um, I, I would just add also that as far as what NAG actually does, besides putting it on the letterhead for those those letters, they're kind of taking a more of an administrative role where they are may organize any calls among the AGs to discuss that letter or to facilitate just the collecting of the signatures to sign on to the letter and that kind of thing. So that's another part that they they play in it. But as Paul said, it's not really a policy role at all. So state AG um, staff participate in a lot of different working groups where they may discuss different topics of interest. And uh, those could consist of robocalls, negative options, Class Action Fairness Act. Uh, That was one that I actually um, helped co-chair during my time at the Texas AG's office. Um, And there's other areas like privacy. So any, any, any kind of topic that the state AGs may have a particular interest in, they may decide to organize a working group to have further discussions among each other about those topics. And um, sometimes those those groups may lead to a multi-state investigation or or discussions of the relevant multi-state investigations on on those calls as they shared their, their ideas with each other. As far as what NAG's role is with these working groups, they're more, again, providing like an or, or organizational role where they may keep, keep lists of, of who is in the groups uh, just so, so people are able to contact that group when needed, provide access to conference lines, take role, th- those kind of things. And that's, that's in the rare instance where they actually do participate in the call. Uh, typically, they, they wouldn't even participate in the call, the NAG staff themselves. Um, Rather, it's just state AG staff that would typically be participating and having discussions on these calls. So um, another thing that can spring out of multi-state efforts sometimes might be grants. And so that's another area that Paul was going to talk about. Thanks, Beth. So grants, grants are probably one of the areas that I think cause a lot of confusion about what NAG does and, and NAG's role. And, you know, it's not surprising when we start talking about money, people are, are going to take interest, right? But NAG, NAG actually administers and holds funds for a number of consumer protection grants that are that that really come out of past multi-state consumer protection enforcement efforts. And these are really from some of the larger um, multi-state settlements in the past decade. In particular, the, the big ones are the Volkswagen grant and the financial services fund, which came out of the national mortgage settlement. So both of those were rather large monetary settlements that virtually all attorneys general participated in. And a portion of that money was carved out, held by NAG, and it is used at, again, at the direction of a committee that is made up entirely of a bipartisan group of attorneys general who basically take applications from other attorneys general 
on how those grant funds should be used. So grants are used for a variety of things. They can fund meetings, they can fund trainings, they can fund assistant attorney general travel to some of these, these key meetings, like the, the biannual consumer protection meeting that NAG puts on. You know, a lot of times where state budgets may not be able to bear the brunt of some of those costs, these NAG grants can come in handy to, to help use for that. I'd say the primary purpose though and use of these grants is to help fund some of the administrative costs that are associated with multi-state investigations. Probably the, the greatest example that I can give both because it's it's a, a very large public settlement, but also something that I was very hands-on in for the last several years was the national opioid settlement with the three major distributors and manufacturer Johnson & Johnson. If, if you just think about the size of, of those cases and those companies, you know, the types and volume of documents that are, that are exchanged in that kind of investigation get to be completely overwhelming. And the cost of electronic discovery services is, is not cheap. And it's something that a number of state AGs often deal with in, in their uh, enforcement efforts. And so grant funds were repeatedly used to help fund those storage costs that uh, continued to skyrocket as those investigations continued. As part of the McKinsey and Company settlement, which was really the first large opioid settlement, there was a significant amount of money that when you look at those, those settlements went to repay NAG. And it's, it's somewhat confusing when you see it described that way, but that's basically what that money is used for, right? It's, it's money that is coming from as the result of those investigative efforts. Um, it's now being used to replenish those grant funds so that as additional consumer protection enforcement is happening in the future, those grants continue to thrive and exist for AGs to make use of. So they're not designed to be sort of, you know, large money makers or anything like that. These are just sort of a, a set of funds that when the states decide there is an important issue that they need to come together and look at or deal with or be trained on or anything like that, there's a pool of money available for them to, to utilize. And, and as I said, you know, these are funds that are, are structured and driven by court order because they were all part of those those settlements um, that were entered into many years ago and ultimately overseen and approved by the specific attorneys general who um, run those committees. Um, NAG is very transparent about um, who runs the committees, you know, the processes involved. Um, all of that is available on their website and you can see sort of the bipartisan makeup of, of each of those committees. The last area that we're going to turn to is meetings and trainings. I touched on this a little bit as we talked about the, the grants, but Beth, can you talk a little bit more about sort of what types of meetings and trainings NAG helps administer and, and oversee? Sure. So NAG help administer the National Attorneys General Training and Research Institute, which goes by NAGTREE. So there's another acronym for you. NAGTREE is another organization that consists of, well, is, is guided by a bipartisan group of an advisory board of AGs. And through their role and with the assistance of NAG, there's different meetings and trainings throughout the, the year that AGs and their staff 
uh, may be invited to. Uh, some of those events may be on a, a national scale. Some of them may be more local. Some could even be for individual uh, state AG offices, and they may focus on, on different topics or areas. These are really useful for the AGs and their staff to be able to participate in because it's one of the few uh, options that are available for them to receive actual AAG-specific trainings on different topics um, where, where that might not really be available as like a CLE or something else for them um, elsewhere. So that can really uh, help develop their, their practice. And the actual contents of the trainings are, are mainly guided by the AG staff that um, are putting on those trainings as, as faculty or on the committees uh, of those of NAGTRI and um, the specific committees within that um, that help identify the topics to have trainings about and again, serving as the faculty as well. And one thing I would be remiss not to mention is that uh, Paul actually received a faculty of the year uh, award from uh, NAGTree for his participation as uh, faculty in the past. So that he, he's definitely been a, a faculty member several times and and I've been the beneficiary of, of, of a lot of those trainings and found them very helpful to me. Well, thanks, Beth. And, and yeah, I mean, I think all uh, anyone that's in the AG community or, or that comes from the AG community, I think at some point benefited from, from those trainings, especially in the consumer protection space, because that is, you know, like, I, I, like we said before, a, a really valuable resource for, for all of them. And, um, you know, one of the primary ways that that they can learn some of the, the the very important differences between attorney general enforcement and and private litigation, right? Because you know there are certainly a lot of obligations and and ethical considerations that apply to the government that you know really sort of shape the direction that um, enforcement priorities should and and do um, follow. And so, you know, it it is absolutely important and crucial to have that component as an AG staffer. You know, just to kind of wrap up the the conversation, if you're hearing a common theme today and and have sort of one big takeaway, I, I think that it should be that when you're looking at what the sort of priorities and and focus and and message and training and all these important areas are for attorneys general, Remember that it's the AGs themselves who are the ones that are setting that. It's not NAG or an organization, right? NAG is an entity that facilitates all of those important priorities of the AG community. And when it comes to consumer protection, there's obviously a lot of of need and, and overlap with NAG because NAG helps facilitate a lot of those efforts, be it, you know, education, be it, you know, uh, actual training sessions or actual, you know, enforcement efforts. There's a lot of back-end facilitation that that those grants and and other resources can can provide to the AGs. And so, as, as we counsel our clients, right, the important message we tell them is that you know when you have concerns or considerations about you know any sort of particular area that an AG might be looking at, you if you become the target of an AG investigation, remember that it's really that AG that you need to deal with and and be direct with, not 
you know, any outside organization um, like NAG. And, you know, um, with that, uh, I think we will wrap up our discussion today. If you want any more information about um, these topics, other state AG efforts, or just marketing, advertising law, and, and consumer protection issues generally, be sure to visit our website at adlawaccess.com. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.